Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LeDuc. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we want to talk about uh, Zion and the gathering of Zion in Missouri. We talked a little bit about uh, the saints coming out there and kind of the separation between Ohio and Missouri and some of the conflict that was, was caused by the lack of communication. That's when last we left the listeners. And we also want to talk about what's going on with the Missourians as, you know, it's still not ever a very large number, but in the relatively less populated Western Missouri, you know, every dozen Latter-day Saints that do show up is, does start to have some kind of an effect. So some of the newspapers in the area make their commentary about these Mormonites as they join. In fact, that's the title of this article from September of 1831. So again, let's get our timeline straight. Joseph Smith comes to Missouri in July of 1831 and declares, this is the land of promise. This is where we're going to build the new Jerusalem. And in September of 1831, um, the Missouri intelligencer says this, we learn from the Painesville Gazette that this infatuated people are again in motion. In their own cant phrase, they are going to inherit the promise of God to Abraham and his seed. Their destination is some indefinite spot on the Missouri River. They say about 1,500 miles distant. So they're quoting a, an Ohio newspaper, the Painesville Gazette. About 80 of them have recently been ordained and some have gone. Others are about to go two by two, part by the Western rivers and part by land to their distant retreat, far away from the cheering voice of civilized men. Those who have disposed of their property go now and such as have property are making a market for it so eagerly as often to disregard pecuniary interests and all are to follow with all convenient dispatch. They still persist in their power to work miracles. They say they've often seen them done. The sick are healed, the lame walk, devils are cast out, and these assertions are made by men heretofore considered rational men and men of truth. The Gazette expresses the opinion that although the leaders of the sect are great impostors, a great portion of its members are sincere and honest. Some of the leaders of this sect, we are told, passed through this place, now this is the Missouri paper talking, two or three weeks since on their return to Ohio. We understand that they've determined to migrate to Jackson County on the extreme edge of this state, for which purpose they have purchased a sufficiency of land whereupon to locate the whole of the believers of Mormonism. We have some hope that the latter part of the paragraph may be true. As in any other event, we should not rejoice much in the acquisition of so many deluded and insane enthusiasts. So how do the Missouri papers really feel about the Latter-day Saints moving in? You know, the deluded and insane enthusiasts. Here's another example, but from June of 1832. This one is titled Mormonism. 
Uh, again from a Missouri newspaper. Some days since, several Mormonite preachers in their peregrinations uh, passed through this and the adjoining counties. In St. Clair, not so much impression was made. One preached in Lebanon, four miles from us. In Madison County, on the Ridge Prairie, a few miles south of Edwardsville, they were more successful in making impressions. Several families, Methodists, Baptists, and others, were almost persuaded. We believe all have been cured of this single fanaticism. (laughs) But one family... A Mr. McMahon, a pious and respectable man and Methodist local preacher, was so bewildered with their new Bible and their power to work miracles and to follow them to the as to follow them to Shoal Creek where he got baptized into the Mormon faith and received from them a commission to preach and work miracles in turn. After one or two ineffectual attempts with his neighbors, he became entirely deranged in which exercise his wife was soon joined. Under the notion that they were fighting evil spirits, they commenced a frenzied attack on their house and furniture. They demolished a valuable timepiece, a new high-posted bedstead, bureau, chairs, etc., and tore off the weatherboarding and broke the windows in the house. The next project was to sacrifice one of their children, but they were interrupted by the appearance of some of their neighbors who were obliged to confine this promising disciple of Mormonism in irons till he became more peaceable. He's now suffered to go at large, though still laboring under mental alienation. His wife is somewhat better. These sudden and apparently providential effects of the Mormon faith has put a stop to further proselytizing in this quarter. We hope the people hereafter will be satisfied with the Bible God has given us and the religion it reveals without the addition of the Book of Mormon. In a future number, we intend to give a sketch of the origin, progress, principles, consequences of the Mormon faith that our readers may see to what lengths of infatuation men can go when they leave the straight and narrow way. So, um, that uh, uh, is actually, you know, it's a Missouri paper actually quoting something that they're getting from an Illinois paper. The point being, in Missouri, it's being regularly reported that essentially Mormons are crazy. I mean, this idea that this, I mean, I, I have no idea what part of the veracity of this story there is. I very much doubt that their plan was to try to sacrifice one of their children. But if it was, it certainly wasn't because they were being taught that by any Latter-day Saint teacher or elder, right? This is similar to the... Sounds like they were reading from God's Bible, the story of Abraham. Well, yes, but then trying to enact it. That's what Without I'm God actually Yeah, I don't remember that part in the Book of Mormon is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, you know, um, maybe they were thinking about throwing them and their scriptures into the fire from the Book of Mormon. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the point is that, I mean, they're trying to demonstrate just how crazy they are and and you could see why if you didn't actually know a Mormon and this is what you're reading in your paper how are you going to react to them? You're going to be inclined already because they're, they aren't strictly biblical Christians to believe whatever crazy thing people say. And then you have these anecdotal stories of, Oh yeah, that person became a Mormon. They're like super crazy. You, you get those anecdotal stories that actually bolster your denial of anything legitimate in the faith. Why well, this is I mean, still true. Even today, when I think about, people that I meet 
that, you know, is in, in my travels for work or otherwise, when I meet somebody that doesn't really know anything about Latter-day Saints, the things that they believe or have heard are the craziest things. If you see some a movie where they mention Latter-day Saints or a TV show where they mention Latter-day Saints, it's like, oh, you you don't know anyone that's a Latter-day Saint or there's no one advising you because you're saying stuff that we don't believe in any way whatsoever. And what's kind of funny about that is sometimes people will refuse to believe what you actually do believe. <laughs> I've had so, that happen. So yeah. you'll be, oh, well, you, you guys believe in this. Well, we, we, we don't actually. No, no, I know you do. Okay, okay. I'm, uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb and suggest that I know what I believe as someone who's a member of the church better than you do who once saw an HBO miniseries about it. I'm just going to guess. Um, my wife, you know, tells the story that uh, one of our doctors, when she was, she was having one of our children was convinced and look, this is a doctor. So this is not, this is an actual, and not just Dr. Dr. Hurl, Phil, yeah, no, Dr. Not, not Dr. Philosophy. Like His parents named him doctor. An actual doctor with an actual degree, maybe from a Bahamian medical institution, but still a degree. No, he had a real degree. Was certain, no matter what Angie said, that all Mormons were actually secretly polygamous. And not just kidding. Like, just like, well, I mean, I've seen big love. I see, I see what goes on with it. Yeah, that's, that's not the church I want. Well, no, I think it, I mean, like, wasn't trying to be a jerk about it, but was certain that I had several other wives that I just wasn't telling anyone about. Well, on, on my mission, I would regularly. Well, you're young. You don't. You don't know yet. Yeah. You haven't. You haven't. You'll uh, find this. You'll out. find they, this out when there. you get to the higher levels. They'll let you know. I'm like I'm an elder. I don't know. No, no, no. no. You haven't hit the higher level in the temple. That's what I've I'll been tell you. through. The okay. no, no. The higher level. The higher level. You haven't been to the higher level. You've been to the higher level. Then you'll know. I mean, that works out really well in America because American culture is so, uh, it is so averse to secrecy and so willing to believe in conspiracy that conspiracy theories thrive in the United States in, you know, in ways that are, are stunning, honestly, because there's a cultural belief that anything that you don't fully understand and know about has to have some kind of sinister aspect to it. Has to. And when you try to say, well, that's not sinister, it's just the way this is, the response is, yeah, that's what they want you to think. I mean, the the, the reality is- That's you, how deep the conspiracy goes. You can't goes. win the that's argument. Right. You can't win the argument because, well, I know there was a second shooter uh, in the Kennedy assassination. Well- you know, multiple independent studies have demonstrated that they don't think there is. Those people were in on trying to cover it up. Right. And so, well, how do you win that argument now? I mean, it's kind of like our discussion of that horrible, you know, martyrdom documentary. Well, we don't have evidence for this, but that's because they're hiding the evidence. Well, well, I mean, that's not how it works with history, right? You have to have it. So for these Missourians, they are already not enamored with these newcomers moving there. As our letter with W.W. Phelps and Joseph Smith demonstrate, 
the the members there are apparently not being delicate in their proclamation that this land is is our land and not your land. Uh, Woody Guthrie wasn't there to soften the blow, and um, and and so there there's already some animosity there. And then on top of that, you have this cultural animosity that just seems to get worse and worse. Uh, in April of 1833, a Missouri newspaper is going to report this under the heading of the Mormons. We've been requested by a correspondent to publish the annex letter. It is from a seceding Mormon to his friends in Fulton County in this state. From Independence, Jackson County, February 25th, 1833. Since I arrived here, I visited the Mormon meetings, one of which was called the Solemn Assembly, where the bishop declared by vision from Joseph Smith that they were all under condemnation for not reading the Book of Mormon, and thus they must repent or they would be cut off and Zion would be removed somewhere else. He also declared that the seer Joseph Smith had the keys of the kingdom of heaven and could see the multitudes of angels and knew what they were doing there. He also declared that he had the power that Jesus Christ had when he was here in the flesh, that he had the discerning of spirits so as to discover who were worthy, even to the lowest as well as to the highest. Also that no member can bring any accusation against an officer of the church, neither can they bear testimony against an officer of the church, that no member could sell his possessions to any individual whatever, not even to a Mormon, that if he left them or should be turned out for any improper conduct, he must leave all and go out empty, that the elders had power if they lived faithful to the Lord to discern the spirits of private members, whether they were worthy to remain in the church or not, that they must consecrate all their property in the name of Partridge, a bishop, to the Lord, so that they would all be lost, or they would all be lost, and must enter into a covenant to that amount, which all that were present did, which property is valued by Partridge and two un- uh, other officers that he may give a list and pay taxes for the same. I have visited many members since I came here to see their manner of living. Their diet was principally water, porridge, salted, and and bread. Provisions are indeed plenty, but they cannot be purchased by those who have no money. I want you to take a copy of this and send it to be read in every place of public meeting in your vicinity. All my family here except one are shaken from the Mormon faith. I wish you would take some little pains to have this letter uh, or the foregoing facts published. Yours respectfully, Salmon Sherwood. Um, now, now that is uh, uh, a letter describing the apostasy of someone. And what's interesting, you'll notice this part of what he's talking about with, with the apostasy deals very much with property. Remember when we talked about um, the law of the church, Doctrine and Covenants, section 42, that one of the things that the new bishop's office was declared to do in, in, in Doctrine and Covenants, section 41 and then 42, was the members of the church were to consecrate their property to the church. They were to give their property to the church, and then the church would give them a stewardship over a certain amount of property. Now, in American capitalism today, the idea of people giving all of their money to the church sets off alarm bells everywhere, and people are running for you know, John Birch Society blue handbooks to try to, to, to dispute, you know, the communism that's ever present. This is a real problem today in the United States. There are members, I mean, in fact, every year when we talk about the consecration of properties in my classes, there are one or two students who feel so uncomfortable 
with the idea of the consecration of property that they feel like they need to stop and talk to me about it. And, and that's always the comparison that they make. Well, this is like, that's like communism. Now that's what someone is thinking in a Latter-day Saint is thinking in the United States in 2022. Imagine what's going through the minds of people in 19th century America where capitalism isn't just, you know, what you do. It's unregulated capital capitalism. There is, there's nothing stopping it at this point in American history and land ownership. Isn't just the way that you make money principally because almost everyone's a farmer. It's what makes you a contributing member of society. Many States still have land ownership requirements to some greater or lesser degree in order to, to vote in certain elections. If you recall our, our tedious, tedious podcast on townships and the attempt to prevent Mormons from voting in township elections, that having owning property is so, is so central to who you are as a person. And there's just the, the only thing similar to it today in American society is the ownership of a house that people feel like they need to own a house. And by that, I mean, the bank owns the house, but they say that they own it because they're making payments to the bank for the next 30 years. But the idea of that, they quote unquote, own the house is, is, is part of something that culturally people need to feel in order to feel successful. Well, imagine a 19th century world where land ownership is not just what some people do. It is the ideal of essentially every American. I will not be a real man until I own property. And what is the church asking members to do? Give all of their property to the church. If you think it's hard to write that tithing check out or submit it online, you do know they allow you to do it online now. You really should. It's 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 much better. Um, imagine if you're giving all of your property to the church. So you own 100 acres of property. You give it all to the church. And the church gives you an assigned stewardship back. You might say, here's 70 acres that are your your acres to work on, to farm, to raise crops on, to, to live, build your house, whatever. But it's not actually your property anymore. It's the church's property. And the price for maintaining that stewardship is maintaining your faithfulness in the church. So, you know, salmon here, our, our friend named after a fish, um, one of the things he is talking about how is that if people leave the church, they don't get to take their property with them that they consecrated. And, and so someone might say, well, I don't even understand. That just seems so, like I said, I mean, and I, did Joseph Stalin come up with this idea? I mean, why, why is it that we're, we're, we're doing communal ownership of land? Think for a minute about what the city of Zion is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where every single person in it is living the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone. That doesn't mean that they're perfect, but it means that every person in the city is devoted first and foremost to the Lord Jesus. Well, we've learned by sad experience that it's the nature of almost all men, 
right? The, the reality is people sin even if they are believers. And sometimes even people who profess to be great believers apostatize like Mr. Sam and Sherwood and write antagonistic letters to the editor about that experience. So let's say you're building the city of Zion. Everyone who lives in there is a believing member. They love the church, except for Bill on Temple Street, who was caught committing adultery and when he was excommunicated, decided to set up a brothel in his house and also a printing press that publishes anti-Mormon literature. So now it's the city of Zion plus Bill's brothel and bait shop or whatever you know he's doing in the rest of his, his house. How can that now be the city of Zion? It's the city of Zion plus one uh, angry apostate who's running a brothel. Well, that that's not the city of Zion, right? Because the whole idea is the entire community is dedicated to the Lord. So there actually isn't another way that you could create this society unless the the church owned all of the property. Because then... In order to live on that property, you had to have a minimum level of worthiness. If you leave the church, then you leave your ability to live in the city of Zion. The church isn't taking anything from you because you don't own any of the land. In, in some ways, I mean, a, a, a probably a poor association, but in some ways, this is how it is kind of for BYU University students who um, come to BYU signing an, an honor code that they will live a certain standard of worthiness while they are there. Now, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but it has occasionally happened in the past, the distant past, that not every single student at BYU has completely lived that honor code in their time that they were a student there. Well, the agreement they made in order to come is that they would live it. If they are no longer, and you know, very rarely students are actually expelled for, but let's say that someone was. It, it would have been after they had already agreed. I agree that if I'm going to, you know, do drugs and drink the whole time I'm there that I'm, then I'll get kicked out of school. And that's, and that, that is unfortunately what happens sometimes when, when that occurs. I mean, a critical person will say, Oh, it's just because the church is being too judgmental and, you know, BYU's, you know, demanding too much of its students, but you can see the, the problem here. And this is the, something that we've talked about before when it comes to this terminology of boundary maintenance Every organization that exists struggles with what the boundaries are of what acceptable behavior is inside of that organization. Now, religions have particular organizational boundaries that are, you know, um, uh, often, you know, faith-based or, or actions-based, right? Well, if, if you're going to be a member of the Methodist church, you can't also be telling everyone that Jesus was a false prophet and wasn't actually the Messiah. That That's kind of antithetical to what the Methodists are teaching people. So that would become a problem. Um, but, but it's actually the case with, with, with all organizations. All organizations have limits to where they say, look, 
if this member doesn't, isn't going to do X or is doing X, then they can't be a member of it. I mean, you don't have to go very far on a political page to find that the, the most moderate members of either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party have members of their own party at times calling for what? Their expulsion from the party. Well, you're not a real Republican. You're not a real Democrat, right? Why? Because they're saying that what we're drawing boundaries around of what is acceptable in the party, you're outside of it. Well, similarly, uh, whether you're talking about BYU, I mean, well, what's the point of BYU? We're going to create this religious education and, you know, students are going to live at this minimum standard of worthiness so that there is a minimum level of worthiness on the campus. The campus isn't going to be a drinking campus. is isn't going to be a partying campus. It's going to be the stone cold sober campus. Well, if you don't have any standards, then it, then it wouldn't be the stone cold campus. It would be, it would end up being something else. And enforcing those rules obviously causes all kinds of, of pain. Well, you are already seeing that in Missouri. People have consecrated their property and they have received stewardships of land that they are to take care of, that, that is theirs to do whatever they want with it as long as they are members of the church. But once they leave the church, they didn't actually own the land. This would be like someone listening, leaving the church and trying to take with them the pew that they always sit in at church every Sunday. I know that you feel a lot of ownership of that pew to the point where when it's like a missionary farewell and you come in and some weird people are sitting there like, what are they doing? Like you actually have the thought, at least oh, I won't, I won't put this on you. I actually have the thought like, why are those people in my chair? Right. Obviously I, I'm no actually get mad at them. Or if I did, I would just not tell you about that on the podcast. But the, the reality is they don't actually have ownership. And, and that's kind of the idea of how the city of Zion is going to be built. Now, look, there are lots of members in Missouri that do have private ownership of property. Not all of the land has been consecrated all at once. It's a slow and a steady process where the church is buying some property. Members are consecrating some other property. And the price of having a stewardship over some of that land to farm as your own was maintaining your membership in the church. So this is another aspect of what might be termed by Missourians of un-American behavior by the Latter-day Saints. Communal ownership of property was not as much of a hiss and a byword as it will become later after the rise of, you know, international communism and the Soviet Union. But in the 19th century, the few societies like the Shakers um, that were trying to live these kind of communal lifestyles were seen as very much out of step with mainstream Christianity and blasphemers, actually. The odd part about that is, of course, the idea of consecrating property comes directly from, from the New Testament. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, if you're wondering why Ananias and Sapphira aren't around today, well, maybe because it was 2,000 years ago, but, but also... But the main reason... Also because of a consecration problem um, where they you know, lied about the property that they had consecrated. And Peter said, well, the people who carried your husband out the door are here for you. And, and they dropped down dead. I mean, it's a very, it's a dramatic story from the New Testament. 
But the idea of consecrating all of your property to the church is not just something that's made up by Joseph Smith or that the Lord delivers in, in Doctrine and Covenants section 42. It's, it's something that is biblical. And early on during the Reformation, some of the most radical Protestant groups attempted to enact this type of consecration of properties. It's one of the things that causes the, the Anabaptist groups in uh, during the Reformation to be so heavily despised by the more mainstream Protestants. And you even have the tragedy that takes place in the, the kingdom of Munster where uh, yeah, this, this uh, Anabaptist you know, leader essentially uh, attempts to create his own little kingdom out of this city. And the idea behind it is this consecration of properties within it. And, you know, it all, it all ends very badly. And, and a bunch of the people inside the city are killed by, by forces that attack the city to try to bring it back to proper Christianity. So this is this idea of collectivization of property has a very negative connotation already in Protestant history. And in America, especially where private land ownership is, is a pretty unique thing in the world. One of the things that, that sets the United States apart from most of the rest of Europe at the time was just how many people in America owned their own property. In England, for most people in England, the ownership of their own property wasn't even a consideration. Even if you were a wealthy person, it was likely that you couldn't afford to buy property. There was almost no available property. And so, you know, you every, everyone rented. Everyone, it was still the holdover from the feudal system. Everyone rented whatever land they were on. And often it was a lord or a duke or some incredibly wealthy person who owned that land. Well, in the United States, there was this kind of democratization of land ownership where someone who wasn't noble, who wasn't rich, just moved a little bit further west, cut down a few trees, and the next thing you know, they were a landowner. And so while they had that ideal that came from England that land ownership was you know, essentially next to royalty— they didn't have the scarcity of land that they had in England. And so that they that ideal of land ownership was still very, very key, but it was much more accessible to most Americans. Well, and when I say most Americans, obviously what I mean is white American men, because most women were not allowed to own property. Um, and in fact, the moment they got married, whatever their property they own immediately became their husbands. And obviously there was a great deal of persecution against, uh, against even, you know, former slaves. I mean, there are black men and women who own property in especially the Northern States and even, even in some of the Southern States, but obviously they're going through a, a, a much more difficult process at any rate. This these, the, the, the idea of consecration is so radical that it's going to be one of the reasons cited by this apostate for why he leaves the church. You'll notice one of the other things he cites, something that we covered in a previous podcast, was the fact that Joseph Smith claimed he knew what was going on in the vision in heaven. The vision is such a radical revelation that that might have been the starting point for why this, this man leaves the church. Um. As, 
as more and more Latter-day Saints move to Missouri, there is greater consternation in Western Missouri about what these Latter-day Saints are doing. It's hard to to have a conversation about where Latter-day Saints stand generally when it comes to slavery. First and foremost, our understanding of slavery is so black and white as far as absolutely yes in favor of slavery and absolutely not in favor of slavery. It's the way we think of the 19th century. We think of free states and slave states and slave states, everyone who lived there, you know, were willing to fight to the death for slaves and, sorry, in slave states, everyone was willing to fight to the death to keep their slaves. And in free states, everyone wanted all the states, the, the slaves freed. And the reality is that it's much more murky uh, what's going on and that most Americans are relatively ambivalent about the idea surrounding slavery. But Missouri in particular was incredibly sensitive about its slave status. And, you know, because I'm hopeful that, you know, either Rachel's mom or my mom or Ari wanted to learn a little bit more about um, uh, American history, I, I'm going to do a little bit of a little American history interlude because it does matter for what we're talking about. Missouri came into the Union in one of the most contentious ways of, of any of the states in the early, the early United States. In fact, probably the most contentious way. And it, it was because it was kind of the symbol of whether or not the will of the founding fathers of the country was actually going to be played out or whether the expectations of those founding fathers were going to be, were going to be muddled and, and, and kind of pushed aside for the letter of the law that was in the constitution in, you know, to make this as, as brief as possible, which means it's going to be not as terribly accurate as it could be. And I'm the one doing it. So in all ways around, it's not going to be the most accurate thing, but at the time of the American revolution and, and in the early stages of the American Republic, slavery was actually on the wane in many parts of, of the United States. Really, for the past hundred years, the, the per capita price, essentially, of tobacco, which was the primary cash crop in the South at the time, had been decreasing for, for years. Similarly with things like rice and indigo, I'm not saying they weren't still valuable, but they weren't nearly as valuable. Uh, a, a good example of this is, is even George Washington um, is going to transform most of his farm from planting tobacco, which is a very labor-intensive crop, requires a great deal of slave labor, and, and Washington, of course, owns slaves, to corn, which was not quite as profitable as tobacco, but also was much less labor-intensive. Or other places where the switch was to wheat, which was even less labor-intensive. Was wheat as valuable? No but it wasn't as labor intensive, meaning you didn't have to have as many workers or you didn't have to own as many slaves. And, and tragically, many of these slaves then get sold off to other places. But in order for a slave society to exist in, in massive amounts, there needed to be a cash crop that supported them. And as tobacco 
continually lost value relative to, to the cost of things, it was becoming increasingly difficult to maintain a large plantation with many slaves. On top of that, the revolution itself disrupted the slave system all over the Americas. The British promised freedom to any slaves that, that enlisted with their forces. They were not very good about actually granting that freedom. Uh, it's going to come as a shock to many people listening that uh, this enslaved minority group was promised uh, that they would receive something and then didn't actually receive it. Similarly, just the, the, the chaos of the war upended the slave system in many places in, in the South and in the North. And also the rhetoric of the American Revolution, the idea that, that, that all men are created equal causes a great deal of individual manumission of slaves from owners. A great example of this is Dolly Madison's family. Uh, her family will just simply free their slaves because they see it as incompatible with revolutionary rhetoric. If we're a nation of freedom, then we're a nation of freedom, right? We can't be, oh, we believe in liberty for everyone. And by the way, we have a million slaves. I mean, that, that it, 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 it doesn't compute. So by the time of the, the Constitution, many experts in the United States believed that slavery was dying. They believed it was a dying institution. They believed that without a new cash crop, without rapid expansion of the area where slavery could be, it was going to eventually die out. In fact, a demonstration of just how close slavery came to dying is after the American Revolution, Virginia, which was by far the most populated state in the entire country and by far had the most slaves of any country, uh, of any state in the country, um, Virginia came within a single vote of abolishing slavery in Virginia. That's how prominent abolitionist movements were in the South, not just in the North. Today, we think of abolitionism as, you know, some guy from Maine trying to free slaves in Florida. That, that certainly was the case in, in the 1850s. But in the 18-teens and 20s, many Southerners are working for at least, you know, a gradual emancipation, if not, if not abolition. Thomas Jefferson's a, a good example of this. Thomas Jefferson speaks openly about slavery being an evil. In fact, if you ever read the Declaration of Independence, one of the things he accuses the British of doing is foisting upon the American colonies a slave system that, that's incompatible with, with liberty. When they draw up the Northwest Ordinance, which would be the means whereby the states of places like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, that they would come into the Union, they bar slavery from those territories. And the author of that Northwest Ordinance is, again, Thomas Jefferson, who is himself a slave owner. So it's a really big contradiction. When the Constitutional Convention meets, there are some who want to lobby to make slavery illegal in the nation. John Adams is no fan of slavery. He wants slavery abolished. But it, it ends up not being something that the delegates are willing to fight over, in part because most of them believe 
that left to its own devices, slavery is already going to die. We don't need to legislate against it. We don't need to ruin the chances of the unification of the country over it because it's going to die anyway. Now, of course, that's all high-level political jargon. The reality is if you're an enslaved person in you know, 1788, you need them to end slavery now. Um, you know, saying that in 20 years, slavery is going to end doesn't help you or your family or you being sold away from your family. So I am talking about the higher level discussions, which of course are not taking into account the individual thousands of slave families that are laboring under this, this wretched institution. At any rate, um, the, in the end, the decision is, is made to not go after slavery in the Constitution, to allow it, to put a sunset clause in the Constitution about a, a foreign uh, slave trade as far as slaves being imported from Africa ending. And there wasn't as much pushback from people who were opposed to slavery as you thought there would be, in part because the understanding was slavery is going to die. Slavery is going to die anyway. It can't survive without a cash crop. The revolutionary rhetoric combined with the lack of economic incentive is going to end up leading to the end of slavery in, in, in the United States. And then right after the, right after the constitution is ratified, Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin. And in that invention, it, it almost single-handedly transforms the position of American Southerners on slavery. You go from having many emancipation societies all over the American South to having a rapid increase in both the value of slaves and the demand for slaves because cotton is incredibly, cotton's more valuable than tobacco ever was. The only thing more valuable than cotton to produce is sugar and, and you can't produce sugar in most places in, in the, the American South. Um, you know, Louisiana being a, an exception, at least in some places. So why, why did I spend all that time talking about that? Well, because I'm a historian, and so historians talk about things that you don't want to hear about in part so that you can get a good night's sleep. I apologize to anyone who's listening to this while they're driving a car, or really I should apologize to anyone who were just hit by the person listening to this in the other car. But um, it matters because Missouri becomes a test of what the nation actually believes. All of the other states that joined the Union after the American Revolution, places like Tennessee and Mississippi and Alabama, all of those states already had, though very limited, very small numbers of population, they already had slaves in them and they were already slave societies prior to the American Revolution. But Missouri was different. Missouri was part of the Louisiana Purchase. So it was part of what the United States acquired after it became a country. And 
while yes, slave owners were moving to Missouri as they continually moved west for cheaper land, and that means most people coming there were from Kentucky and Tennessee and from Arkansas, not from Arkansas, but from uh, uh, Alabama, you know, South Carolina, as they move west to get this cheaper land, they're bringing their slaves with them. And so when they petitioned to become a state in 1820, it kind of puts to the test this American ideal. Is the United States a country that the founding fathers, people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, believed that slavery was an evil and that it should eventually be removed from the country and that it should be it should eventually be gone well you can't make that argument when you're adding a state like missouri which is literally new territory territory that wasn't part of what the united states owned at the time of the revolution if you add missouri as a slave state then gone are your pretensions to oh, we, we realize slavery is an evil and that it needs to die out. Needs to die out? You're expanding it. You, you're now increasing where slavery is. This is where the Missouri Compromise comes in. Northerners were going to block the admission of Missouri as a state. If, if, it, was, if it refused to abolish slavery, they were going to, they were going to refuse its admission. Henry Clay is going to broker this compromise. This is what makes him, you know, the, where he gets the title, the great compromiser. He's going to broker a compromise whereby Missouri will be allowed to be added as a slave state. And now Maine, which as any good, you know, uh, Mainer will tell you that uh, uh, used to be part of Massachusetts. That was, even though they aren't actually connected to one another, Matt, what what is today Maine was actually part of Massachusetts. They wanted to petition to become their own state because, you know, they they didn't want to be a part of Massachusetts, uh, and, and still don't. And so part of the compromise was Maine would be admitted as a free state to counterbalance Missouri being admitted as a slave state. But the real compromise was that a line was drawn on the southern border of Missouri. The southern border, not the northern border. The southern border of Missouri. A line was drawn across the southern border of Missouri and into what was then Spain, New Spain, which is, you know, today Mexico. Um, remember, there is no, you know, Texas is still part of, of Spain slash Mexico. Mexico actually becomes independent while this is all going on in 1821. So it makes it even more complex. So for those of you who do... Spanish slash Mexican history. I'm sorry that I'm being a little bit loose with that, but, um, or as Richard has said, get your own podcast. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you're, if you're so smart about Mexican and Spanish history, get your own podcast. Get your own podcast. Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> the, the line therefore cuts off all of the Louisiana purchase territory, essentially everything North of that, all that would be encompassed. If you, if you had a map, you could, you could see this, the only place that would then would be everything below that line was open to become a slave state. Today, that's only part of Oklahoma and the state of Arkansas. It's almost none of the territory that was purchased in the Louisiana Purchase. Everything else 
Kansas, Nebraska, North and South Dakota, just all, all of that territory, Montana, all of that is considered free forever. The same way that the Northwest ordinance had said, you know, all this land is going to be free. So that's the compromise. The compromise is we'll let Missouri in, but we're going to draw a line on the southern border of Missouri to this very small portion of territory and say that's the only place we're going to allow slavery to expand. Clearly, there's far more territory that it's going to become free states. And again, it's a way of salvaging this ideal. The ideal is that eventually slavery is not going to expand and that will be the end of it. So Missouri comes into the Union in incredibly tense fashion. Of all the states in the South, they are the most concerned about whether or not they maintain that slave status because there was such opposition. to get. Now, of course, a state can vote to abolish its own slavery whenever it wants. That's what happened in all the northern states. All of the northern states all had slavery legalized at some point. I mean, at the time of the American Revolution, there were more slaves in New York state than there were in Georgia. Kind of gives you an idea. Now, obviously, New York was far more populated than Georgia was at the time. But the point being, all of the northern states also had slaves um, at the time of the American Revolution and gradually passed laws ending slavery in each of those states. Why does this matter to our conversation? Well, because the Latter-day Saints arriving in Missouri are almost entirely from the New England states and from the northwestern states of, of Ohio or Indiana. Primarily, though, they're coming from New York. They're coming from Massachusetts. There are some southern converts, but they are by far not the majority. And so as they move into this especially Western Missouri, which was heavily dominated by pro-slavery politicians and and settlers, there is a great unease that's developing because the Latter-day Saints might threaten the existing slave status. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that most Latter-day Saints showing up in the South were abolitionists looking to try to end slavery. We'd love to think that as Latter-day Saints today because that would make us feel good about the past. But it's just not true. But they were coming from the North, which meant that most of them had, at best, an ambivalent view towards slavery. And at worst, as far as the Missourians are concerned, they wanted to end slavery. Part of the issue was they wanted to preach the gospel to everyone. There was no prohibition against black men and women joining the church. And so apparently, at least according to the Missourians, when the Latter-day Saints started arriving, they started preaching the gospel to everyone, including the slaves that were in the area. And masters saw this as an absolute breach of of propriety. Don't you be filling my slaves' uh, minds with ideas of their equality and their uh, you know, they're, they're worth in, in the eyes of God, because if they're equal in the eyes of God, well, then that means that God might be okay with them not being owned, right? That this, this kind of this idea. 
And it's this concept of slavery that's going to be the real thing. You know, yes, they're blasphemers. Yes, they're they're deluded. There's all kinds of things going on. But it's this spark that comes from the issue of slavery that's actually going to trigger the expulsion from Jackson County and the violence that's going to take place. The the rhetoric surrounding this is captured. We were talking about in the, in the movie legacy, um, which like we said, Ari is where we get all of our Missouri accents. They come from whatever actor was hired by the church to pretend to be a Missourian, but was probably actually from Utah. Um, and, and, you know, if you remember this, you can go watch it on YouTube, the, the, the movie legacy, and they show the gathering of Missourians there where they're, they're creating their resolves to kick the Mormons out of the County. And, and the, the, the guy running the meeting, you know, talks in his, in his accent, you know, about how, you know, a couple of years ago, half a dozen or so of these Mormons arrived on the banks of the upper Missouri. Now they're over 1200. They are superstitious and opposed to slavery. You know, uh, and then, you know, some guy jumps up and like, what about that Joe Smith? Talking to his angels. His angels. Yeah, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's high pitched it's for, great. it's, it's, it's breaking glass all around them. And then the guys, the, the guy has probably my favorite line of any church uh, movie ever. Uh, it, after the, the squeaky voice, then he's like, he's like, in no time you have a mom and sheriff. And mom and judges. Yeah, yeah. The, the, and mom and judges. <laughs> It is a very, you know, you know, pointing to, I mean, they actually do a really good job in that demonstrating what the concerns of the Missourians were. The Mormons are blasphemers. The Mormons are outsiders. The Mormons are affecting the political balance of the sparsely populated Western Missouri counties. But it's the slavery issue that is going to cause them from, it's going to, it's going to trigger the Missourians from disliking the Latter-day Saints moving there to violently expelling them. So in our next podcast, we're going to talk about what the spark was that triggered that violent response that causes the Saints to lose Zion. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast. Hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.